Chapter 16 of the Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 16 Still, as Consuelo was not alarmed at her condition and made almost no change in her manner of living, her health was quickly re-established. She could resume her evenings of music and again found the deep slumber of her peaceful nights. One morning, it was the twelfth of her captivity, she received from Monsieur de Polnitz a billet which notified her of an egress for the evening of the next day. I have obtained from the king, said he, the permission to go myself for you in one of his majesty's carriages. If you give me your word not to fly out of the window, I even hope to relieve you from the escort and to cause you to reappear upon the stage without that gloomy accompaniment. Believe that you have no more devoted friend than I, and that I regret the rigor of the perhaps unjust treatment you receive. Consuelo was somewhat astonished at the sudden friendship and delicate attention of the baron. Hitherto, in the frequent communications as theatrical manager with the prima donna, Monsieur de Polnitz, who, in his quality of ex-roué, did not like virtuous girls, had appeared very cold and dry. He had even often spoken of her regular conduct and reserved manners with a malicious irony. It was well known at the court that the old chamberlain was the king's spy, but Consuelo was not initiated into the secrets of the court, and she did not know that one could fill this odious office without losing the advantages of an apparent consideration in the world. Still, an instinctive repulsiveness told Consuelo that Polnitz had contributed more than any other to her misfortune. She therefore weighed her words when she found herself alone with him on the morrow in the carriage which bore them rapidly to Berlin towards the close of day. "'Well, my poor recluse,' said he to her, here you are, devilishly brought down. What savage fellows those veterans are that guard you. They were not even willing to let me into the citadel under pretext that I had no permit. And now, without exaggerating, I have been freezing here a quarter of an hour waiting for you. Come, wrap yourself well in these furs I have brought to preserve your voice and tell me something of your adventures. What the devil happened then at that last ridotto of the carnival? Everybody asks, and nobody knows. Several originals, who in my opinion do no harm to anyone, have disappeared as by enchantment. The Countess St. Germain, who is one of your friends, I believe, a certain Trismegistus, who was said to be hidden at Monsieur de Galaukens, and whom you perhaps know also, for they say that you are on the best terms possible with all those children of the devil. Have these persons been arrested, asked Consuelo, or have taken flight? Both versions are current in the city. If those persons do not know why they are persecuted any better than I, they would have done better to have firmly awaited their justification. Or the new moon, which may change the humor of the monarch, that is still more sure, and I advise you to sing well this evening. That will produce more effect than the finest words. How the devil have you been so awkward, my beautiful friend, as to get yourself sent to Spandau? 
Never, for such trifles as you are accused of, would the king have pronounced so discourteous a condemnation upon a lady. You must have answered him with arrogance, with your cap on your ear and your hand on the hilt of your sword, like a little madwoman as you are. What have you done that is criminal? Come, tell me. I'll bet I can arrange your concerns, and if you will follow my advice, you will not return to that damp mousetrap of Spandau, but will sleep this evening in your pretty apartment at Berlin. Come, confess. They say you had a fine supper in the palace with the Princess Amelia, and that you amused yourselves in the very middle of the night with playing the ghost and whisking the broom in the corridors in order to frighten the queen's maids of honor. It appears that many of those young ladies have miscarried and that the most virtuous will bring into the world children marked with a little broom on the nose. It is also said that you had your fortune told by the planetary of Madame de Kleist and that Monsieur de Saint-Germain revealed to you the secrets of the policy of Philippe le Bel. Are you so simple as to believe that the king wishes to do anything but laugh with his sister at such follies? The king has, moreover, for Madame the Abbess, a weakness which is almost childish, and as to the diviners, he only wishes to know if they take money for relating their idle stories, in which case he requests them to leave the country, and all is said. You see well that you deceive yourself respecting the importance of your part, and that if you had quietly answered some questions of no consequence, you would not have passed so sad a carnival in the prisons of the state. Consuelo let the old courtier prattle on, and when he pressed her to answer, she persisted in saying that she did not know to what he referred. She felt there was a trap under this benevolent frivolity, and did not allow herself to be caught in it. Then Polnitz changed his tactics, and in a serious tone, Well, said he to her, you mistrust me. I am not displeased at that. On the contrary, I value prudence very highly. Since you are thus, mademoiselle, I will speak to you openly. I see well that we can trust in you, and that our secret is in good hands. Learn then, Signora Porporina, that I am more your friend than you think, for I am one of yours, I am of Prince Henry's party. Then Prince Henry has a party, asked the Porporina, curious to learn in what intrigue she was involved. Do not pretend to be ignorant of it, returned the baron. It is a party which is much persecuted at this moment, but which is far from being desperate. The Grand Lama, or if you like it better, Monsieur the Marquis, is not so firm upon his throne that he cannot be made to tumble. Prussia is a good war horse, but it must not be pushed too far. So you conspire, Sir Baron? I never should have guessed it. Who does not conspire at this moment? The tyrant is surrounded by servants devoted in appearance, but who have sworn his ruin. You are certainly very inconsiderate, Sir Baron, to make such a confidence to me. If I do so, it is because I am authorized to do so by the prince and princess. Of what princess do you speak? Of her whom you know. I do not think the others conspire, unless it be the Margravine of Breith, who is dissatisfied with her sorry position and angry with the king since he snubbed her on the score of her understanding with Cardinal Henry. That is already an old story but a woman's grudge lasts a long while, and the Margravine Willamette, footnote, Sophia Wilhelmina, 
She signed herself Sister Willamette when writing to Voltaire. Has an uncommon mind. What do you think of her? I have never had the honor of hearing her say a single word. But you have seen her at the Abbess of Quinlinburg's. I have been only once at the Princess Amelia's, and the only person of the royal family I met there was the king. No matter, Prince Henry then has charged me to tell you. Really, Sir Baron, said Consuelo, in a contemptuous tone, has the prince charged you to tell me anything? You will see that I am not jesting. He wishes you to know that his affairs are not ruined, as some hope to persuade you that no one of his confidence has betrayed him that St. Germain is already in France, where he is laboring to form an alliance between our conspiracy and that which will soon reinstate Charles Edward upon the throne of England, that Trismegistus alone has been arrested, but that he will make his escape, and that he is sure of his discretion. As to yourself, he conjures you not to allow yourself to be intimidated by the threats of the Marquis and above all not to believe those who pretend to be in your interests in order to make you speak. That is why just now I subjected you to a little trial from which you came out victorious, and I will say to our hero, to our brave prince, to our future king, that you are one of the staunchest champions of his cause. Consuelo, astonished at the coolness of Monsieur de Polnitz, could not repress a burst of laughter, and when the baron piqued at her contempt, asked the motive of her misplaced gaiety, she could answer nothing except, You are admirable, sublime, Sir Baron. And she began to laugh again in spite of herself. She would have laughed under the cane like the Nicole of Monsieur Jourdain. When this nervous attack has passed away, said Polnitz, without being disconcerted, you will perhaps deign to explain your intentions. Would you betray the prince? Can you really believe that the princess would have given you up to the king's anger? Would you consider yourself freed from your oaths? Beware, mademoiselle, you would soon repent it, perhaps. Before long, Silesia will be delivered by us to Maria Theresa, who has not abandoned her projects and who will at once become our powerful ally. Russia, France will certainly join hands with Prince Henry, Madame de Pompadour has not forgotten Frederick's disdain. A powerful coalition, a few years of struggle, may easily precipitate from the throne this proud sovereign who holds only by a thread. With the love of the new monarch, you can aspire to a high fortune. The least that can happen from all this is that the elector of Saxony may be dispossessed of the crown of Poland and that Prince Henry may go and reign at Warsaw. Thus... Thus, Sir Baron, there exists, according to you, a conspiracy which, to satisfy Prince Henry, may yet again subject Europe to be ravaged by fire and sword, and that prince, to gratify his ambition, would not recoil from the disgrace of giving up his fatherland to strangers. I can with difficulty believe such things possible, and if, unfortunately, you speak the truth, I am much humiliated at passing for your accomplice. But let us put an end to this comedy, I beseech you. Here for a quarter of an hour you have been exerting yourself very ingeniously to make me confess imaginary crimes. I have listened to you in order to discover under what pretext I am retained in prison. I am still to learn how I have deserved the hatred that has so basely attacked me. 
If you will inform me, I will endeavor to exculpate myself. Until then, I can answer nothing to all the fine things you communicate, except that they surprise me very much, and that such projects meet with no sympathy from me. In that case, mademoiselle, if you are no better informed than you say, returned Polnitz, much mortified, I am astonished at such want of caution on the part of the prince, who induced me to speak to you without reserve before being assured of your adhesion to all his projects. I repeat to you, Sir Baron, that I know absolutely nothing of the prince's projects, but I am very certain of one thing, which is that he never requested you to say a single word to me on the subject. Excuse my thus giving you the lie. I respect your age, but I cannot help despising the horrible part you play with me at this moment. The absurd suspicions of a female brain cannot affect me, replied Polnitz, who could no longer draw back from his falsehoods. A time will come when you will do me justice. In the trouble occasioned by persecution and with the sorrowful ideas which the prison must necessarily engender, it is not astonishing that you should entirely want penetration and clear-sightedness. In conspiracies, we must expect such whims, especially on the part of ladies. I pity and forgive you. It is possible, moreover, that in all this you are only the devoted friend of Trank and the confidant of an august princess. Those secrets are of too delicate a nature for me to wish to speak of them. Prince Henry himself closes his eyes to them, although he is not ignorant that the only motive which has induced his sister to enter into the conspiracy is the desire of seeing Trank restored and perhaps of marrying him. I know no more of that either, Sir Baron, and I think that if you were sincerely devoted to any august princess, you would not tell me such strange things respecting her. The noise of the wheels upon the pavement put an end to this conversation, to the great satisfaction of the Baron, who knew not what expedient to invent in order to get out of the scrape. They entered the city, the cantatrice escorted to the door of her dressing room in the wing by two officers who kept her almost always within sight, received quite a cold welcome from her comrades. She was beloved by them, but no one felt courage enough to protest, by outward testimony, against the disgrace pronounced by the king. They were sad, constrained, and as if struck by the fear of contagion. Consuelo, who did not wish to attribute this conduct to cowardice, but to compassion, thought she read in their dejected countenances the sentence of a long captivity. She exerted herself to show them that she was not alarmed and appeared upon the stage with a courageous confidence. There happened at this moment something very strange in the body of the theater. The porporina's arrest having made much noise and the audience being composed only of persons devoted to the royal will, either from conviction or position, each one put his hands into his pockets in order to resist the desire and the habit of applauding the disgraced cantatrice. All had their eyes fixed upon the monarch who, on his side, carried his investigating glances over the crowd and seemed to impose upon it the deepest silence. Suddenly a crown of flowers, coming no one knew whence, fell at the feet of the cantatrice and several voices pronounced simultaneously and loud enough to be heard from the various parts of the hall where they were distributed these words. It is the king. It is the king's pardon. This singular assertion passed from mouth to mouth with the rapidity of lightning, 
and each one thinking to perform his duty and give pleasure to Frederick, a tempest of applauses such as had not been heard at Berlin within the memory of man burst forth from the ceiling to the pit. For some moments the porporina, amazed and confounded at so audacious a demonstration, could not commence her part. The king, stupefied, turned towards the spectators with a terrible expression which was taken for a sign of sympathy and encouragement. Budenbrock himself, placed not far from him, having asked young Benda what was the matter, and the latter having answered that the crown came from the king's place, began to clap with a bad humor that was truly comic. The porporina thought she was dreaming. The king pinched himself to know if he was wide awake. Whatever might have been the cause and object of this triumph, Consuelo felt its salutary effect. She surpassed herself and was applauded with the same transport during the whole of the first act. But during the interact, the mistake being somewhat cleared up, there was only a part of the audience, the most obscure and farthest removed from being put right by the courtiers, who persisted in giving signs of approbation. At last, in the second interact, the orators of the corridors and Pitt told everybody that the king appeared much dissatisfied by the foolish conduct of the public, that a cabal had been arranged by the porporina with an unheard-of audacity, finally that whoever should be pointed out as having taken part in this malicious attempt would certainly repent of it. When the third act came, the silence was so profound in the hall, in spite of the wonders accomplished by the prima donna, that you might have heard a fly buzz at the end of each piece sung by her, and to make amends, the other performers gathered all the fruits of their reaction. As to the porporina, she was soon undeceived, respecting her triumph. My poor friend, said Conciolini, as he presented the crown to her in their wing after the first scene, I pity you for having such dangerous friends. They will complete your ruin. Between the acts, Porporino came into her dressing room, and speaking in a low voice, I told you to beware of Monsieur de Saint Germain, said he to her, but it was too late. Every party has its traitors. Be nonetheless faithful to friendship and attentive to the voice of your conscience. You are protected by an arm more powerful than that which oppresses you. What do you mean, cried the Porporina? Are you of those? I say that God will protect you, replied the Porporino, who seemed to fear being overheard, and who pointed to the partition which separated the actors' dressing rooms from each other. Those partitions were ten feet high, but there was a considerable space between the tops of them and the common ceiling, so that what passed in one room could easily be heard in another. I foresaw, continued he, speaking in a still lower voice and giving her a purse, that you would be in want of money, and I have brought you some. I thank you, replied Consuelo. If the keeper who sells provisions to me very dearly should come to claim any payment from you, as here is enough to satisfy him for a long time, refuse to settle his bills. He is a usurer. It is enough, replied the good and loyal Porporino. I leave you. I should only aggravate your condition if I appeared to have any secrets with you. He went away, and Consuelo received a visit from Madame de Cochiai, the Barberini, who courageously testified much interest and affection for her. The Marchioness d'Argens, the Cochois, joined them with a more starched air and with the fine words of a queen who protects misfortune. 
Consuelo was nonetheless obliged to her for her conduct and requested her not to compromise the favor of her husband by prolonging her visit. The king said to Polnitz, Well, did you question her? Did you find means to make her talk? No more than if she had been a stone post, replied the baron. Did you make her understand that I would forgive all if she would only tell me what she knows about the sweeper and what St. Germain said to her? She cares for it as she does for the year 40. Did you frighten her about the length of her captivity? Not yet. Your majesty told me to win her by gentleness. You will frighten her when you carry her back. I will try, but I shall not succeed. Then she is a saint, a martyr. She is a fanatic, a person possessed, perhaps the devil in petticoats. In that case, woe to her. I abandon her. The season of the Italian opera finishes in a few days. Make your arrangements so that we have no need of this girl until then, and don't let me hear of her for a year. A year? Your Majesty will not stick to it. Better than your head sticks to your shoulders, Polnitz. End of chapter 16. Read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown.